Excuse me, sir. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Does evil exist? I think it does. What's the solution to it? this round. Do you believe in evil? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I suppose there's something evil, yeah. I believe it exists. How do you, what's the solution to evil? I uh, know, don't think about it and don't do it. It's plain and simple. Depends on what kind of evil, spiritual, emotional, physical. How about spiritual? Mm, don't believe in spiritual evil. Evil and good is what you perceive it. Why does evil exist? Oh, gee. I have better things to think about. Okay, how, why does happiness exist? Why is there evil? Um, I don't know. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> um, probably because... The devil? <laughs> What's the solution? God. How do you connect with God? Prayer. Are people basically good or evil? I believe they're good. I think people are born good, turn evil real quick. Why? Environment? Or up upbringing? What's this for? What is this for? We're doing a video. I think people are basically good. What's evil? What's evil? I think evil is a choice that people make. How do you deal with evil? Uh, wooden stick. How do I deal with evil? Try to avoid it. Okay. Say... Try to guard myself against it. How do you guard yourself against it? Well, I understand the difference between good and evil. I think that, um, the best that you can do is just try to be as nice as you can and hope that, uh, I guess karma or whatever will, uh, help you out. I don't think you can avoid it. What is the solution to dealing with evil? Um, it depends what kind of evil you're talking about. It all depends on the person, how the person deals with it individually. How about you? How do you deal with it? Um, I don't know. I don't run into it that much. So you don't have to worry about evil? No, not really. You live in a, in a, in a pure no, world. I mean, there are evils and everything, but... What can you really do about it? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband. But he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us. Knowing both good and evil, what if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? They will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and He placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we pray this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word. Your word is truth. God, we know that we live in a world where every day we struggle against evil. And Lord, we live in the midst of a land, in the midst of an age where by and large people have turned away from your word and don't have the answers that you give us. Lord, you tell us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of your word is inspired and it is profitable for teaching and instruction and reproof and correction so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly competent to do your work. Lord, help us to know your word that we might be able to answer those who need to know about Christ. Speak to us now. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now folks, you knew, you had to know at least that today's sermon was coming. You know, I told you last week that when we talk about the subject matter of evil and suffering, uh, some of the answers that I want to give you from the Word of God may not be so obvious or predictable at first, and others will be. Now, this is one of those messages that is very predictable. You see, when we talk about evil and suffering, you would have to predict that somewhere in this series, we would need to talk about the evil one, Satan. 
But just because that's predictable does not mean that it's any less true. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy. We have an adversary. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 and following that he is roaming about on the face of the earth seeking someone to devour. And as he does so, he's sowing seeds of corruption and evil and suffering. You know, evil in the world implies that there is something behind it, some personality behind it. Now this shouldn't surprise us. Because where we find good in the world, we find people carrying out that good. Where we find evil in the world, we find people carrying out that evil. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that on a larger cosmic scale, there is someone, some personality behind the evil and suffering in the world. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now folks, when you read that about the last days, what a picture of contrast that is from Genesis 1 and 2. Remember Genesis 1 and 2 that after every day of creation God saw what he had made and he said it is good. And finally he said it is very good. We have to ask ourselves, what happened? It's clear that something happened to interrupt the good creation that God had made. Now theologians refer to it and biblical scholars refer to it as the fall. The fall of mankind. The fall of mankind refers to this this period in Genesis 3 when the first couple listened to the voice of Satan. They disobeyed God and sin was introduced into the entire created order. And folks, it's important for us to see that sin affected everything. Everything. It affected Adam and Eve's relationship with God, as we see in our text today. They are hiding from God, they are alienated from God, they are separated from God. It affected our relationship with one another. We see that later on in this passage, how they were blaming one another and there was division between the man and his wife. And we see there in verse 16 that the battle of the sexes began. It affected their children in the very next narrative. If we were to go on reading in Genesis chapter 4, we see that one brother, Cain, rose up against his other brother, Abel, and he murdered him. Sin affected society. In Genesis 6, God saw all of the wickedness of mankind and said every thought and intent of his heart is wicked and the whole earth is filled with violence. And then Paul said in Romans 8 that the whole of creation was plunged into darkness. Folks, the only hope for mankind, the only hope for this world is redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our only hope. Scripture says that through Christ, God is making all things new. The Bible tells us later on in the New Testament that this current heaven and earth will pass away and God is going to create a new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. And what a wonderful place that's going to be. 
We read those descriptions in Revelation about the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down and how it's a perfect cube and in every direction it's pure gold. And what we're to remember is in the temple, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube overlaid with gold. And so what we're being told in the book of Revelation is that the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the whole of it, will be the holy of holies and we will be in the presence of God. We will be with him and he will be with us. But until then, what's the church to do? The church is obviously to pray. God is sovereign over this planet. He's sovereign over all things and we need to preach the gospel. If the redemption of mankind is the only answer, then we need to be about our Father's business, preaching the good news. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. In other words, politics demonstrations, social media, whatever avenues people take today, those things are not the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. Now today, I want us to go back to what is the foundation passage in the Bible to see what went wrong. But folks, I I don't want you to simply think about the first couple. As we look at the first couple, we see what they did, what happened. And we need to understand that we continue to do that very same thing today. And so Genesis 3 is very contemporary in application. The problem continues to be that when men and women at Satan's instigation ignore God's word and think they have better solutions, we end up alienated from God and from one another and all sorts of evil moves in to fill the vacuum. And I want you to also see where I'm headed today. The second half of Genesis 3. You see, we're not going to talk about Satan just for the sake of talking about Satan. But beginning in verse uh, 14, I believe it is, and following, we're going to see the evil and suffering that results from the activity of Satan. And so again, when we look at evil and suffering in the world, one of the things we certainly have to consider is this personality that the Bible calls the devil, the adversary. We can't have this discussion over a number of weeks without talking about the evil one. First of all, I want you to see with me the prelude to the fall. The prelude to the fall. And what we see here is that Satan is a schemer. Verse 1 says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now immediately we get into this chapter and what do we see? We see a very rude intrusion. Again, Chapters 1 and 2, everything's beautiful. Everything's good. Man and woman are, are created in the image of God. They enjoy a wonderful, intimate relationship with God and with one another. And God is walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Nowhere in the world would you find any more of a beautiful and a serene scene than what you find in Genesis 1 and 2. But then we see in chapter 3 something horrible has gone wrong. Now folks, we know that Satan has been caricatured so much by writers today and actors and comedians. Some people today don't even believe he exists. They take the D out of devil to simply end up with evil. There's just this impersonal evil force in the world. But folks, the Bible plainly points out that the devil is real and he is a personal being. The masculine pronoun he is given to him and we see him as a literal 
figure on the pages of Scripture. The Bible never denies the existence or the presence of Satan. Jesus never doubted the existence of Satan. Jesus referred to him as a murderer and the, and the father of lies. And he called him the evil one. The Bible refers to him as the prince of this world. Paul called him the God of this age, the ruler behind this present world system who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Well, right away we're introduced to him here. He's a creature. He's a serpent talking. Again, keep in mind, everything's good at this point. You know, today, if I see a snake or you see a snake, what are we going to do? I don't know about you, but I'm going to run. <laughs> there may be another clue behind this, a serpent talking. Now, I want to emphasize something. And I've, I've mentioned this to you before. This, this is only speculation on my part. I want to emphasize that. But when you read Isaiah chapter 6 about the seraphim flying around God's throne, crying out, holy, 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 the background of the word seraphim refers to serpent-like creatures. Was Satan among that classification of, of angels? Does that explain a serpent-like appearance? I don't know, it's just a thought. But his name, think with me too about his name. Satan literally means adversary. Satan is our adversary. He is against us. He's your opponent. He is your enemy. And he's called the devil. The Greek word means the one who accuses us. In Genesis 3 we see the devil slandering and accusing God before men and in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 we see the devil slandering and accusing men before God the Bible also refers to him as the dragon the great red dragon that we see in Revelation with that image what's the Bible doing the Bible is purposely giving us a very hideous image of Satan so we will not be attracted to him now where did he come from well as we look at other places in the Bible we're, we're able to put together a pretty good picture but I want to say first of all he is a created being as such he's not equal with God I mentioned last week how some people in the world hold to a dualism a dualism that says there are two equal sovereigns in the world one good God and the other bad Satan and they're engaged in some kind of cosmic struggle and man's kind of sitting back waiting for, to see who's going to finally win this battle we don't believe in dualism. There are Eastern religions and all that hold to that. Satan is not equal with God. He's not omnipotent. He's not sovereign. He is a created being. And in Isaiah 14 we read this. Uh, commonly attributed a, a description of Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. And then in Revelation 12, verse 3 says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Satan lost his place in heaven. He still goes there, according to Job 1, to accuse us before God, but he certainly doesn't have a home in heaven. He's roaming about to and fro in the earth seeking someone to devour. And on top of Satan, uh, 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, there's a whole host of principalities and powers. Demonic powers. We don't battle against flesh and blood alone, but against principalities and powers in high places. Now think also about what John says in Revelation 12. John writing there in apocalyptic language of the woman about to give birth to her child and Satan the dragon is there to devour the child. What's John describing there? John is describing the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And think about what Herod tried to do immediately upon the birth of Jesus. He tried to devour him. He tried to kill him. And again, Jesus said he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a murderer, he's the father of lies. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see him setting his target on the first man and woman. Folks, first thing we need to realize as Christians is he's no, he's no pushover. How's he described here? He's described as the shrewdest, the craftiest, of all the creatures that God had made. He's not a pushover. And Paul in 2 Corinthians says he will even, dis- he will even disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive people. De- disguising himself as an angel of light. He's crafty. He's shrewd. And so we need to be wise to his schemes. The second thing I want you to see with me this morning, anatomy, the anatomy of the fall. Satan will twist God's word and try to get you to desire what God has forbidden. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says there, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God knowing good and evil. I want you to notice what the tempter did here. He went with a full frontal attack upon the authority of God's word. One of the ways Satan operates is to try to destroy our lives with his lies. Getting us to doubt God's word. Getting us to live our lives outside of the authority of God's word. He'll try to convince you there's no such thing as heaven. There's no such thing as hell. If there is a heaven, just try to be the best you can be. Maybe you'll get there. Religion will be enough. After all, to the human mind, that makes sense, doesn't it? Just be good enough. Maybe you can get there. You know, there's a proverb that says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof end in death. Satan will twist God's word. He'll call God's word into question. Folks, God did not say at all what Satan is claiming he said. Look look back at chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17 to see what God said. God said there, uh, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. But what Satan is trying to do in chapter 3 is he's trying to make God look stingy. He's trying to make it look like God is being unfair, that God is asking too much. God is withholding something from them that they need. Whereas in reality, just the opposite is the case. God had given so much to Adam and Eve. God only withheld one thing that God knew needed to be withheld for their protection. Why did God do that? Because He loves us. 
But the devil wanted Eve to view God as a cosmic killjoy and that he had forbidden any kind of enjoyments. He wants us to believe that every time somebody is having a little bit of fun or pleasure, he's going to move in and break it up. But the Bible says Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. Psalm 84 says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, God gives us all good things to richly enjoy. God is a good God. He's a kind God. He's a benevolent God. He's not stingy. If God says no to something, it's because you don't need it. It's going to harm you. Do we really believe that God knows best what we need and what we don't need? I hope we do affirm that. God knows best. Now we can see right away from Eve's response, she's in trouble. She too misquotes God's word. There's a little bit of carelessness that she's running with here. She adds to the word. Because she says that God told him, you're not even to touch it. Not that you're just not to eat it, you're not even to touch it. God didn't say that. But you know again, that's like us though, isn't it? When somebody restricts us, we add to it. I like what Dr. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis says here. A father corrects his daughter and her, her friend for misbehaving and says it's time for the daughter's friend to leave and go home. What's the daughter do? The daughter goes running to her mother and she cries and says, Daddy made Katie go home and says she can never ever come over here again. Or the employee comes out of his boss's office and he's just been uh, corrected for being late. He comes out and tells the other employees. The boss indicated that if anybody is ever late again under any circumstances, he or she will be fired on the spot. Human nature, isn't it? Eve is adding to God's word. She's running free and fast with God's word. Now folks, there's a lesson in that for us. When we do not know the word of God or when we are careless with it, listen to me, we are setting ourselves up to be attacked by the evil one and deceived. Satan directed Eve's gaze to the forbidden tree. He wanted her to see that it looked good. It looked appealing. It looked attractive. You know, that's what he does. He doesn't show us things that are hideous and that we recoil from. He wanted her to see something that would appeal to her. He got her to linger on what she should have fled away from. And, and he convinced her that if she would only take and eat this, she could be independent of God. Go ahead and do your own thing. Forget about what God said. In fact, you eat of this and you can be like God. Folks, sadly, that's where most of the human race is this morning. Ignoring God and doing their own thing and they're living as though they are independent of God and they're able to make all their own decisions that's best for them. We don't like authority, do we? Even the authority of God's Word. And even sometimes in the church, we don't know it like we should. We've been given one book to know. When Jesus encountered the devil in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? He knew the Word of God and he was able to use it correctly. And when he did that, he resisted Satan and Satan left him. The Queen of Sheba, when she traveled to go see Solomon and hear his Proverbs... If she traveled an average of 20 miles a day on camel, like what would have been average back then, to go there and back 
not even including the time she would have stayed there, it would have taken her five months. Five months of travel, lots of expense, just to go and hear Solomon's Proverbs, what we have today in one book of the Bible, book Proverbs. Yet we have so much more of God's Word. And we don't know it. No wonder Jesus said at the end of time, at the judgment, the Queen of Sheba will rise up to judge us. Man ignores God's Word to his own peril. And man is so gullible that he thinks he's so free and he doesn't see that he's playing right into the hands of the devil. Folks, as Martin Luther said, we've got free will, yes, but after the fall of man and the total depravity of man, even our free will is held in bondage to sin. Even our free will, it's going to go in the direction away from God, not towards God. Satan got her doubting God's Word and trying to do just the opposite of what God's Word had told him to do. Again, how well do you know God's Word and are you doing what it says? Or are you kind of running fast and free with it and doing your own thing? Again, you will do that or I will do that to our own peril. God knows best. He truly does. Now I want you to see the results of the fall. Satan will tell you that disobedience to God does not have bad consequences. But, but just look at the second half of the chapter. And, and look even earlier than that. He says you will not die. He wants you to believe that God won't punish sin. He tries to turn the Ten Commandments into ten suggestions. The whole thing hinged upon whom Eve was going to believe. God or Satan. This morning I want to ask you who are you going to believe? Again, Satan said, you'll be like God. With that first bite, she was his. She was a sinner. The scripture says, he who commits sin becomes the slave of sin. And then what did she do? She gave to her husband. She gave to her husband. She shared in this. Think about that today. The, the pornographers try to seduce everyone into joining them in their shame. The drug addicts want to get others with them. Demonstrators burning and looting and tearing up try to get mobs to join with them. And what does what do so many people do? Just join right in with the crowd. She's wanting Adam to join in with her disobedience. And what's the consequences? Well, right away we see that they become alienated from God. Their eyes were opened all right, but when their eyes were opened, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And then immediately too, they realized they're hiding from God. They're alienated from God. They're separated from God. And then they're trying to sew fig leaves together to, to cover their nakedness. They're trying to fix the problem themselves. Someone said that for the first time in history, a man's wife had to go shopping for clothes and we've never gotten over it. (laughs) But seriously though, just like Adam and Eve with the fig leaves, we try to fix the problem ourselves. We try to come up with our own solutions that are just modern day fig leaves. Man tries to cover his nakedness. He knows he's separated from God. He knows he's in deep trouble. He's trying to do something. But he's trying his way and it doesn't work. Next we see him again just like I mentioned a moment ago. Hiding from God. Folks that is absolutely futile. You remember somebody in the Bible that thought he could get away from God? 
Jonah. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. I think of what King David said in Psalm 139. God's everywhere. You go that direction as high as you could go. That direction as low as you could go. That direction as far as you could go. That direction as far as you can go. Everywhere you go, guess what? God is there. There's nowhere that he's not. You can't get away from God. You can't hide from God. Which also says you can't commit your sin in secrecy from God either, right? Think about that. God knows everything about you. The Bible says He even knows the intent of your heart. He knows everything. You can't hide from Him. You can't run. Before... The voice of God in the garden had been their delight. But now they're trying to get away from Him. God knows where they are and He calls them out. Not only are they hiding from God, but there's division among them. They're blaming. They're pointing the finger at one another. Adam is making excuses. God, it's her fault. It's this woman you gave me. And God, by the way, since, since you gave her to me, it's ultimately your fault. It's your fault and it's her fault. And then, say, uh, then the woman says it's, it's the serpent. It's his fault. Excuses. Do you do you think you think God hears excuses today? Sure he does. God, you made me this way. It's your fault. You put me in this situation. On and on the excuses go. Adam has gone from saying in chapter two, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, to now pointing the finger at her. It's more than they bargained for, right? It's like the old saying. Sin will cost you more than you intended to pay. And it will take you further than you intended to go. And it will keep you longer than you intended to stay. Sin sounds like so much fun up front. The teenager thinks that the back seat of the car offers so much pleasure. But then there's a teenage pregnancy to deal with. The husband or wife thinks the affair will be their little secret. And then it's found out and they lose their family. And on and on it goes. The devil promises a party and instead he delivers hell on earth. Sin results in judgment. God judges sin. You mark it down. God will judge sin. And as we look at the latter part of this chapter, see what happens. The serpent now crawls. And then the woman, look at the consequences. She's in agonizing childbirth. Apparently before the fall, childbearing was going to be just a piece of cake. No pain, no trouble whatsoever. Ladies, think about that. There's the battle of the sexes that begins in verse 16. God says to Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. In other words, what the Hebrew is saying here is your desire is going to, you're going to want to control him and you're going to want his place of leadership, but he's going to rule over you and it's not the good word for rule either. It's the dominating word. You're going to try to control him. He's not going to give it up. And so there's going to be this tug of war. And then look at what God tells Adam about his work. Man was created to work, to be creative. It'd be joyful activity, but now it's going to be grueling, painful labor. He's going to be working the earth uh, through toil and sweat. And yet even at that, the earth is often not going to produce its harvest. It's going to produce thorns and, and thistles and weeds. And then finally God says to Adam, you're going to die. 
You're going to die. You're going to return to the dust from which you were made. Death is a horrifying thing. Men mock it. They seek to rob it of its gruesomeness by embalming the dead, putting makeup on the dead, surrounding the casket with flowers. But folks, death is still death. So what do we do? What do we do if the story closes here? Do we just run and hide and divide and then finally we, we just die and it's all over? Is that the answer? That's not God's answer. Again, man thinks he has the answer, but he doesn't. God, however, gets at the heart of the problem. Because the heart is the heart of the problem. But man's solutions, to quote a politician from about 12 years ago, we're, we're, man's trying to put lipstick on a pig, right? That's what we're trying to do. But God gets at the heart. God's solution is a sacrifice. For the first time in the garden, something had to die. And Adam and Eve should have seen that bloodshed, something dying, and begun to realize what sin was costing. Something had to shed its blood. A radical cure for a radical problem. And then what happens to the Old Testament? The sacrifices that point towards that one sacrifice. Where John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Satan came against the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. And the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, stood squarely on God's word. And stood on God's word without compromise, without disobedience. And Satan fled. And then on that first Palm Sunday over 2,000 years ago, the perfect Lamb of God entered the gates of the city. He was examined for three days just like the lamb, uh, the lambs. The religious leaders examined him. And they couldn't find anything against him. They had to produce false witnesses. The civil leaders, Pilate, examined him. Pilate finally said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He was the perfect lamb and yet he was crucified. The blood was shed. The sacrifice was made. The shame of our nakedness was covered. And Jesus bowed his head on the cross and said, it is finished. And on that third day, what happened? He rose again. And he's opened the way into the very presence of God. Jesus has reconciled us. We're still sinning, living with the consequences of sin. But through the death of Jesus, he's reconciled us to God. And not only that, but through Christ, we can be reconciled to one another. And we can have purpose in life to live to glorify God. And he's preparing a place for us. It'll be another garden. But the garden we read about at the end of the Bible, there'll be no sin and no Satan. Nothing will ever interrupt what will be there in that garden with God. He's making all things new. Folks, do you see how the whole Bible ties together? But guess what, folks? In tying the whole Bible together, the Scripture is very clear. You were there, as Paul says in Romans, you were there when Adam sinned. You were in his loins, so to speak. Adam was man, and man sinned. And then we come along and we only ratify what Adam did because given the same choice, guess what? We do the same thing too. In Adam, you die. But again, Paul goes on in Romans 5 to say there's the second Adam, Christ. And through him, we can be made righteous and reconciled to God. The whole human race right now is either, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you die. 
eternal separation from God. But if you're in Christ, you may die, but just like Jesus said to uh, Mary and Martha in John 11, He's the resurrection and the life, and even though a man dies, yet shall he live again. This morning, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Christians, are you giving your mind and heart to a study of God's Word so you, so you can know God's will and God's plan and stand against Satan's attacks when he attacks? Because guess what? He is going to attack. He is going to attack you. Are you going to live under God's authority? Do you need to make some steps this morning to get into this book to know it more so you'll know how to respond when Satan attacks. Is there division between you and somebody that you know in your heart of hearts too that a relationship with Christ needs to fix? Where are you? In Adam? Or in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that you have given us everything that we need to stand strong against the enemy. He still attacks, he still comes to us, tries to get us living independently of God, making our own choices. Ignoring God's word. Young people do it and old people do it. We all do it. We sin and fall short of your glory. And we go our own way. And we find out that it's not what we thought it was going to be. And we end up with the consequences of sin. But Father, thank you that you've given the remedy. Our remedies won't work. But your remedy does. I pray for that one right now who needs to come to Christ. They need to have all their sins forgiven and know that they're reconciled with you. Lord, let them know how much you love them. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in them right now. Drawing them to Christ. And help them to make a bold confession of faith. Lord, I pray for believers who have gotten away from your word. And they live their lives day in and day out relying on their own wisdom. Lord, that will will fail us. Help us to trust you and to know you through your word. And to stand upon it and not to compromise it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.